First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Our scripture reading this morning is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead throughout his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin mine own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Imelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and she, became, and she became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. 
and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Oed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. If I can't see God, how do I know for sure he's involved in my life? I don't know what the future has in store for me. How will our needs be met? I'm not from here. Will I ever fit in? Will I ever belong? I want to have hope. Who can I hope in? Will a Redeemer ever come for me? Father, we thank you that a Redeemer has come for us. We thank you that you sent your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, to us. To die for us and to rise again. Father, we know that in him and in him alone, redemption can be found. And so, Father, today we pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word. Father, if there is someone here who does not know today that redemption that is found in Christ, that you would speak to them and draw them to yourself even in this hour. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for being the redeeming, gracious, loving God that you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of... One of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. And as we will see, it is not just a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story that has impacted all of our stories. Now, this story did not start out so beautifully as we saw in chapter 1. Uh, first, there was a famine. And then there was the death of Elimelech and his two grown sons, leaving behind only Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And one of them, Orpah, went back home to her home country of Moab. But Ruth continued on with Naomi to Bethlehem. Ruth said to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And we saw in chapter 2 and chapter 3 how the Lord provided for these two widows in their time of need. God sovereignly arranged for Ruth to end up in the field of a relative of Naomi's, a man named Boaz. And he showed her great kindness and great love. And through his kindness, she was able to glean a great deal of grain, was able to provide for herself and for Naomi through those days. And from that time that Ruth and Boaz first met each other, 
that day in the barley fields, we as the readers have been rooting and, and hoping for them to end up together. And in chapter 3 that we studied last week, our hopes were nearly fulfilled. And there was a midnight meeting at the threshing floor between Ruth and Boaz. And as we said, Ruth didn't so much propose, but she proposed that Boaz proposed, and Boaz accepted. Uh, But as we saw last week, there was one potential hurdle. There was one man in the family who occupied a closer position to Naomi and to Ruth than Boaz. And he was first in line to be the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer in the scriptures was a family member who, based on the laws of the Old Testament, could step up and help a family in their time of need. He could do a number of things. He could buy back land that had been sold due to poverty in the family. He could even redeem and and rescue from slavery a, a member of the family who had been sold. Uh, also, of course, he could marry someone uh, and, and bear a child through them to extend and prolong the family's name. And Boaz was in this position of a kinsman redeemer to do all of these things for Elimelech's family. But so was this other man, this man that we have not met yet, the man that Boaz told Ruth about. And so when chapter 3 comes to an end, uh, we are waiting to find out what will happen. We know that uh, Ruth will marry someone because Boaz has assured her of that, but we don't yet know who it will be. We don't know whether it will be Boaz or whether it will be this other man. Before we dive into Ruth chapter 4 and talk about uh, what happened, I think for a moment uh, we need to think about this word that we're going to read 15 times in chapter 4, a a word that is so important in the scriptures, and the word is redemption. We've already talked about a kinsman redeemer, and, and a redeemer is just someone who redeems, someone who brings about redemption for someone else. And a simple, just basic definition of redemption is this. It is a buying back of something or someone. Redemption is a buying back of something or someone. And that's what Boaz does in this story. But the word redemption is an important word in the Bible because it's not only what Boaz did, it's what our Lord Jesus did. In fact, in Mark 10, 45, redemption is what Jesus said he came to do. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the price you pay to redeem something. And Jesus said that he came to give his very life as a ransom for us, to pay the price to set us free. He came to redeem us. That's why he was born. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. And if you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior, then you have already experienced that redemption in your life. This is how Paul talked about that redemption in the book of Ephesians. He said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his 
grace. And again, if you've given your life to Jesus, then you have already been redeemed. And so in this Old Testament story that is all about redemption, I hope that if you're already a believer, you'll just be reminded again today of the redemption that you have experienced and that it will cause you to praise your Redeemer all over again. But if you're here today and you have not yet experienced God's redeeming grace, I'm praying that you will today. I'm praying that God will use this story about redemption to bring you to a place of understanding how much he loves you and how much he has done to redeem you. He wants to redeem your life even today if you will respond to him. I believe there's at least three aspects of our redemption that we can see in this final part of the story of the book of Ruth. First, we can see the blueprint for redemption. The blueprint for redemption. You know, in the last verse of chapter 3, Naomi told Ruth this in verse 18. She said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how this matter will turn out. For the man, speaking of Boaz, will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Naomi knew Boaz's character. Uh, he, she knew that he was not the kind of man who would just sit around, that he would be a man of his word, and that even that very day he would settle the situation. And sure enough, when we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, we see that Naomi was right. Boaz gets right to work. It says in verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. So Boaz goes in the morning to the gate of the city. Now, the gate of an ancient city was a very important place. This was a, a place where, of course, people were coming and going, passing through the gates of the city. It was also an area that would be the marketplace in the town, and it was also doubled as the courthouse of the town. And typically built into the gate complex, there would be a little alcove with benches cut into the stone where people would sit down and legal matters like this one would be resolved. And so Boaz goes to the gate of the city for a couple of reasons. One, because it's the most likely place that he's going to be able to track down this other man, this nearer kinsman redeemer. And also because he wanted to invite witnesses there who could uh, see and, and listen to and be a part of the conversation and the transaction that was about to take place. And sure enough, verse 1 says, Behold, look who it is. It's the other man, the close relative that Boaz had spoken about, and he is passing by. And so Boaz calls out to this man, and he says in verse 1, Come aside, friend, and sit down here. Now the word for friend in Hebrew is one of my favorite Hebrew expressions in this book, the phrase poloni almoni. Uh, Poloni almoni, that's just fun to say. And it's roughly the equivalent of our expression, Mr. So-and-so. Basically, this man is not given a name. Now, certainly he had a name. Certainly Boaz knows what this man's name is. And yet the narrator of this story of Ruth uh, essentially feels that this man does not deserve a name. 
and, and, and he avoids giving us his name all the way throughout this account. He is only referred to as Mr. So-and-so. And so following the narrator's lead on that, we'll just call him Mr. So-and-so as we walk through this story. And so Boaz calls out to him, says, Mr. So-and-so, come over here and sit down. And the man does that. And then in verse 2, Boaz calls to 10 other men, other elders in the town, which would form a, a quorum for this legal matter. And he has them sit down as well. And you can just picture the scene in your mind. Here are these 12 men sitting at the gate, Boaz, Mr. So-and-so, the 10 witnesses. And meanwhile, there's another crowd of people that is seeing all of this and gathering around them. There are also, of course, people in the background going to and fro, going out of the gate. And, and it's in the midst of this commotion that in verse 3, Boaz begins to speak about the reason why they have assembled. And we assume that Boaz is going to bring up the matter of Ruth. That he's going to bring up this matter and, and ask Mr. So-and-so if he wants to marry Ruth and redeem her. But that is not where he begins. In fact, the first thing that he brings up is a piece of real estate. Look in verse 3. He said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, when he says that Naomi sold this piece of land, there is a debate among commentators whether uh, Naomi sold that piece of land previously or whether she was putting it up for sale at this very moment. I prefer the former position. I believe that uh, probably 10 years prior, when Elimelech and his family left Bethlehem to move to Moab, that they sold this piece of land. And now Naomi did not have the resources to be able to buy this land back. And so Boaz is giving Mr. So-and-so the opportunity to redeem the land on behalf of his family member, Naomi. Now, we don't know why Boaz brings up the land first. Uh, maybe this was just good negotiating skill. Maybe he didn't want to seem overly anxious to marry Ruth. Maybe he wanted to wait until the last minute to combine the land and Ruth together because he believed that this man could not afford to do both, but for whatever reason, he brings up the land first, and it almost seems that he's goading this man into saying yes to redeeming the land. Look in verse 4. He says, I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And so he's setting this up where he's saying, listen, you're first in line. There's no one uh, besides you. And then the idea there is there's no one before you. You're first in line to be able to redeem this. And after you is me. He's almost appealing to this man's competitive streak uh, to say it's either you or me, buddy. Who is it going to be? And this man probably thought that this was his lucky day. And you can almost see him smiling as Boaz begins to tell him about this piece of real estate because all he had to do was take care of Naomi for a few years. And since she did not have any children or any grandchildren, after he purchased this land, there was nobody for that land to revert to. So that land would stay in his family. That land would stay as a part of his inheritance. And so he thought this is a great financial investment. 
investment. And besides that, he could even appear a little bit compassionate uh, by doing this. He might even improve his status in the eyes of the people of Bethlehem. And so he says, I will redeem it. But for us as the readers, this is kind of a depressing moment when he says this because we're thinking, you have to be kidding me, right? This man, Mr. So-and-so, has done nothing this entire time. Now at the last minute, is he going to swoop in and steal the show? But in verse 5, Boaz pulls out his ace-in-the-hole card that he has been saving for this very moment. And he basically says, oh, and by the way, On the day that you redeem the land, you do understand that means you also have to redeem the girl. You have to marry Ruth also. Look at what he says in verse 5. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now, what Boaz is appealing to is something that is referred to as Leverite marriage. It's talked about all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And look at what the Bible says there. Deuteronomy 25, the fifth book of the scriptures. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family, her, brother, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And this is really what is at stake. A family line within Israel, Elimelech's family, was on the brink of extinction. And because both of his sons had died, there was no one to carry on the family name. And so the role of this family member would be to marry the widow, in this case Ruth, rather than Naomi, because Ruth was still young enough to be able to have children. And again, the whole idea is to be able to have children and to carry on this family line. This is what Boaz is asking Mr. So-and-so if he will do. And I love the way that Boaz asks him this in this verse. Notice he refers to Ruth as Ruth the Moabitess. He doesn't call her Ruth the woman of great worth, that he, the language that he used in chapter 3 to describe Ruth. Instead, he makes sure to emphasize that she's a Moabitess, that she is a foreigner. And then he describes her as the wife of the dead. I think he's trying to make her as unattractive as he possibly can. He's saying, remember what happened to the last guy who married this girl? (laughs) Right? That could be you. It's almost like, you know, you're at a table and there's one piece of cheesecake left, right? And you and your friend are both looking at it and you're saying, you know, you probably don't want that piece of cheesecake, do you? No, it it doesn't look very good. And besides, everybody else that's eaten those slices, they've all gotten sick and thrown up, right? You probably don't want that. That's basically what Boaz is doing here. And and, and in verse 6, the moment of truth comes and we find out that this man, Mr. So-and-so, does not want to risk it. He says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Basically, he's saying I cannot afford it. 
I can't afford to redeem both Ruth and the land. And, and basically, his understanding was this whole deal, as soon as Boaz threw Ruth into the equation, this whole deal went from a, a financial no-brainer to a financial nightmare. Now he thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to buy this land, but now I have to marry this girl. That means I not only have to take care of Naomi, I have to take care of Ruth. And then if we have any children, that boy is going to end up with this piece of land that I just spent my good money on. It's not going to stay in my family. This is no longer a good situation for me. And so he passes. And what we find out about Mr. So-and-so is that he was only interested in helping someone if it was in his own best interests. But the Lord wants us to be a people who will help others, whether it's in our best interests or not. Once he found out that it was too costly, he wasn't interested anymore. It's not too hard to tell who Mr. So-and-so is thinking about when you look at the language of verse 6. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. He was thinking of himself. He was motivated by self-interest where Boaz was motivated by selfless love. And, And the way that the narrator juxtaposes these two men in this story, Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, reminds me of the way that the narrator put together Orpah and Ruth back in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, Naomi is encouraging both of her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to go back home, to go back to the land of Moab. And Orpah eventually does so. And the narrator doesn't blame her for doing that. In essence, she did the reasonable thing. She did what you would expect someone to do. But what Ruth does is not ordinary, it's extraordinary. And in the same way here, Mr. So-and-so does what we would expect someone to do. We don't expect someone to extend themselves or overextend themselves financially for someone else. He does the reasonable thing. He does the ordinary thing. And yet, in contrast, Boaz does the extraordinary thing. And we can tell that these two extraordinary people, Boaz and Ruth, were made for each other. In verses 7 and 8, the narrator explains to us this old custom of passing a sandal, which apparently was already out of date by the time the book of Ruth was written and the first readers were reading it. And so he feels the need to explain it. We certainly need to have an explanation for this, right? Because if we did this when we were closing a transaction, right? Maybe you're signing on your house and you take off your shoe and hand it to the other man, right? They would think you were straight up crazy. But, but this is what they did. And maybe it dated back to the idea that when you set foot on a piece of land, setting foot on that land was a designation of owning that land. And so taking off the sandal and handing it to someone else was a designation of this being transacted to another person. And in this case, he's handing over the right of redemption from himself to Boaz. Again, he did it because he was too worried about his own inheritance, about his own legacy. But as one person pointed out, because he was so worried about his own legacy, he missed out on the greatest legacy of all. Getting to be a part of God's redemptive story. He was so worried about his name. 
And yet, while Boaz's name is honored and remembered for what he did, we don't even know this man's name. He is forever known to us as Mr. So-and-so. He had one chance to do something that would outlive his life, and he passed. Now we don't even know who he is. Proverbs 10, 7 reminds us of this truth. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. And so with Mr. So-and-so sandal in his hand, Boaz turns to the ten witnesses and to all the other people who were gathered there at the gate. And he says this in verses 9 and 10. You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Mr. So-and-so passed, but Boaz did not. He would redeem Ruth, and he would redeem the land, and in so doing, Boaz gives us a blueprint of what our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, would do for all of us. There's actually a lot of similarities between the redemption that Boaz brought to Ruth and the redemption that the Lord Jesus has brought to us. First of all, in both cases, a Redeemer must be close enough to redeem. A redeemer must be close enough to redeem. Boaz could redeem Ruth because he was a close member of the family, because he was related by blood to Naomi and to Elimelech, and Jesus could redeem us because he came close, because he took on flesh and became a man. And because he became a man, he could represent us. He could die in our place on the cross and pay the price that we deserve to pay. Like Boaz, he was close enough to redeem. But also we see in this story that a redeemer must be able to pay the price. Mr. So-and-so said he couldn't afford to redeem Ruth, but Boaz was able to pay the price, and to an infinitely greater degree, so was Jesus. The price of our redemption was high indeed. 1 Peter 1 says that we were not redeemed by gold and silver. That would not have been enough. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. Only his perfect sinless blood was enough. Only that was a high enough payment to buy us back from the slavery to which our sin had taken us. A redeemer must be able to pay the price. But of course, it takes more than ability It also takes willingness. A redeemer must be willing to redeem. Again, Mr. So-and-so was not, but Boaz was, and Jesus was as well, praise God. That he was willing to come and lay down his life for us on the cross and to pay the price. He said, I will redeem them, and he did. And so again, there are many similarities between what Boaz did and what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But of course, we must also recognize that that Jesus' redemption is infinitely greater than that of Boaz. He was and is our greater Boaz. 
Pastor Warren Wearsby points out several ways that what Jesus did exceeds that of what Boaz did for us. First off, Boaz redeemed Ruth out of his wealth, whereas Jesus became poor for our sakes. Boaz went to the gate to redeem Ruth, but the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate to redeem us on the cross. Boaz did not suffer and die for Ruth, but Jesus did suffer and die for us. And then finally, Boaz redeemed Ruth to raise up a name for the dead. Jesus rose from the dead to give us his name. Jesus is our greater Boaz, our greater Redeemer. He came and he lived and he died and he rose again to pay the ransom price to set us free. Friend, have you experienced that redemption in your own life? So in this story, we see the blueprint of our redemption. But we also see in this story the blessing of our redemption as well. Back at the city gate, Boaz had just declared his intention to redeem Ruth and to redeem the land. And he used a legal formula at the end of verse 10. He said, you are witnesses this day. And so at the beginning of verse 11, the elders and the people respond and they say, we are witnesses. But they did not stop there. The end of verse 11 and in verse 12, they add a blessing to this couple that is about to be married. It's possible that this was customary to add a blessing to a couple that was about to wed. And yet this blessing was special because this blessing would prove to be prophetic. What the people said about Boaz and Ruth and their family would come to pass in the Lord's perfect timing. In verse 11... They said, the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. They were praying that God would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. The two women who along with their handmaidens gave birth to the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is high praise and a high blessing for these people of Bethlehem to pass on to Ruth. And you can tell that they're not treating Ruth like a foreigner anymore. Because of her impending marriage to Boaz, she has been welcomed in to the covenant people of God. They are treating her and declaring things over her that were true of their matriarchs, Rachel and Leah. And they're praying this blessing upon Ruth's family. In verse 12, uh, the people added additional words of blessing. They said, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. The people of Bethlehem knew their scriptures well. Because the story to which they refer in Genesis chapter 38 is the only other story in the Bible where Leverite marriage takes place. This marriage and this child that is born, Perez. Now, we won't dig into that story very much today, but I'll just say that it was not a story of two virtuous people like the story of Boaz and Ruth. And yet, even through the sin and the wickedness that took place in that story, Perez was a blessing, and the people in Bethlehem traced their origins to Perez and to his clan. They're praying that Boaz will become famous, a famous man in Bethlehem. 
And their prayer would be answered beyond their wildest imaginations. Verse 13 tells us about Boaz and Ruth's wedding day and their wedding night. And almost as if no time has passed at all, we read that the Lord gave conception to Ruth and she bore a son. And this is only the second time in the entire book of Ruth where we read that the Lord directly acted on behalf of his people. Back in chapter 1, we read about how the Lord uh, intervened in the famine and brought bread back to the city of Bethlehem. And here we read about how he intervened to open the womb of Ruth who was barren for 10 years in her previous marriage. But because of the Lord's intervention, he gave her conception and she bore a son. And in verse 17, we find out that his name was Obed, which means one who serves. And through his life and his service, he would be a blessing to so many. Certainly, he was a blessing to Ruth and to Boaz. But the narrator really emphasizes what a blessing he was to his grandmother, Naomi, in particular. This one who went out full but said she came back empty. And yet ever since that day, she's been seeing the blessing and the kindness and the goodness of God filling up her hands. And what a joyous moment that must have been for Naomi to hold her grandson, to hold this little boy Obed in her arms. In verse 14, the women of Bethlehem come to Naomi's house almost as if they're coming to celebrate a birthday party of little Obed. And they share in the excitement of what was happening in Naomi's life. The very same woman who just a few months before, a year before, had, had heard the complaints and the bitterness of Naomi as she poured out her heart to them. Now we're able to come and to share in her joy and to share in her excitement. And this is what they said in verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. And these women were good theologians. And they ascribed the credit and the praise for all of the blessings in Naomi's life to God. They said, God is the one who has given you this child. And of course he was. And then they prayed for Obed. They prayed that Obed would be a nourisher of her old age, that she would help care for her. And of course, he did. And also, they prayed that Obed would be famous in Israel, and boy, would he ever, particularly through the grandson that God would one day give to him. Obed would be a blessing to Boaz and to Ruth and to Naomi and to Bethlehem and to Israel and ultimately to the whole world. He is a picture of the blessing of redemption. And church, I think it is worth pausing for just a moment and thinking about the blessing of our redemption as well. To think for just a moment about where you were when the Lord found you about how empty you were, and yet he has filled you up, about how lost you and I were, and yet he has found us. Think about how blind you were, and yet he enabled your eyes to see. Think about how enslaved you and I were to sin, and yet he has set us free. Think about where you and I would be were it not for the grace of God in our life. Christian, let this beautiful story of God's redeeming grace cause us to pause and praise God for his redemption in our lives. 
This is not just a story about a couple who lived thousands of years ago. This is our story. This is a picture of our redemption. And not only is it a picture of our redemption, but this story, Ruth and Boaz's story, is an integral part of our redemption. And that is the surprise ending that the narrator of the book of Ruth has been holding back from us this entire time. But at the end of chapter 4, he lets us in on the secret. Number three, this story is a part of the big story of redemption. You know, 20 years ago, there was a little animated movie called Ants that came out. How many of y'all remember that movie Ants? And you know this whole movie is about this little ant colony and what happens within that ant colony. And yet at the very end of the movie, the camera kind of pans out and what you realize is that everything that's been going on with these ants has been going on in a colony that was located in Central Park in New York City. And you realize that this little world is a part of a bigger world, and that's what's going on here. This whole time, we've been looking at one little family and one little town, and yet at the end of this story, the narrator pulls back the lens and shows us that this story of redemption is a part of the big story of redemption that God has been writing. You look at the end of verse 17, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse the father of David. So we find out here at the very end of this story that Obed had a son named Jesse. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Jesse actually had eight sons. And on one particular occasion, a prophet named Samuel came to Bethlehem because the Lord told him that one of Jesse's sons would be anointed as the next king of Israel. And so Jesse lined up his seven sons, and boy, were they impressive. But the Lord said to Samuel, his prophet, I have not chosen any of these seven. And so Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there is the eighth one, the youngest one. He's out in the fields watching the sheep. Samuel said, we won't sit down until he comes. And they went and fetched David. And when he came walking up, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one. And Samuel anointed David, the little shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, king over Israel. It's interesting that this beautiful story, which has included so much dialogue between the characters, ends with a genealogy. But this is, of course, the main point of the whole book. That God has been all along orchestrating events behind the scenes that even during the famine and even during all of the funerals in chapter 1, that God had a wedding in mind. A wedding that would result in the birth of a great king. And it's amazing to think about, again, this story takes place in the time of the judges. This was before the people of God ever asked the Lord for a king. And yet, before he ever asked the Lord for a king, the Lord was already arranging and orchestrating the family line from whom this great king of Israel would one day come. 
The genealogy in verses 18 through 22 does not contain all of the generations. We know that there are some gaps in this list early on and between Salmon and Boaz as well. But the last four names of the genealogy are given without omissions. And the the list is reduced and shrunk down to ten names because a ten-name genealogy was a traditional genealogy for a royal family. And that is what this genealogy was. And in such genealogies, special attention and care and weight was given to whoever occupied the seventh name on the list and the tenth name on the list. And the seventh name on this list is, of course, the leading man of this story, Ruth's husband, Boaz. And in the tenth position, the final name, in fact, the final word in the book of Ruth is David. And so the story ends with King David. And yet the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of the book of Ruth also inspired the rest of the Bible, and he wants us to keep reading. And as we keep reading, we come all the way through the Old Testament, and we come to the first page of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament begins the same way that the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And as we read it, we find a few familiar names there. We'll read again about how Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. By the way, that's the only time the name of Ruth occurs in the New Testament. She is only one of four women whose names are included in the genealogy of our Savior. And then we come to the end of that genealogy that Matthew gives us. And many generations after King David, we read about a son of David who is introduced with these words, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so really the book of Ruth does not end. The story does not end with a couple who met in the barley fields on one bright April day. It doesn't end with the marriage of Boaz and Ruth and the birth of their son Obed. The story does not even end with a little shepherd boy who had to be called in from the fields outside Bethlehem to be anointed as the next king. It does not end with the life of King David who conquered the giant Goliath. He was the greatest king of Israel until the night that Joseph and Mary came on their donkey walking through the fields outside Bethlehem. And they entered into the town. And because there was no room for them that night, in the end, they slept outside in a cattle stall. And it was there in this very same Bethlehem that Mary would give birth to a child who was both God and man. A child who was the son of David. A child who would reign as king forever and ever. A child who came to save us all. It all happened in Bethlehem, and it all happened for our redemption. And that is what this story is about. It's about redemption. And ultimately, it's about a greater redemption than the one that Boaz brought to Ruth. It's about a greater redeemer than Boaz, a redeemer who would suffer and bleed and die for you and for me to pay the price that our sins deserve. And he is the one that the book of Ruth is written to point our attention to. 
Because, friends, you and I need to be redeemed. We are all sinners who stand condemned and deserving of God's judgment, and we can't change that despite our best efforts. We don't have enough in the bank to pay the price. We're like Mr. So-and-so. We don't have what it takes. We cannot afford the price to set ourselves free because the price for our sin was more than we could ever pay. But we have a Boaz. Not a Boaz who sat down at a gate, but a Boaz who hung on a cross. Not a Boaz who was walking in a barley field, but a Boaz who is standing right now at the right hand of God who is risen from the dead. And he can and he will redeem you today if you will turn in faith to him. Because here is the truth that we all need to hear from the book of Ruth. Only Jesus can redeem us and make our little story a part of his big story. I want to ask you to stand with me. And I want to pray for us. And after I pray, I want to give you an opportunity, if God has spoken to your heart, to respond to whatever he has said to you this day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a redeeming God. That no matter what we have done, no matter how empty we may feel on the inside, that you want to fill us up. You want to redeem us and forgive us and adopt us and save us and cleanse us and free us. But it only happens through a relationship with your son Jesus, the son of David. And I pray for anyone here who has not experienced that redemption that even today they would. Jesus' name.